Chapter Twenty Five of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Five: The Outpost of the World. With the report of his gun, Darnot saw the door fly open, and the figure of a man pitch headlong within onto the cabin floor. The Frenchman in his panic raised his gun to fire again into the prostrate form, but suddenly in the half-dusk of the open door he saw that the man was white, and in another instant realized that he had shot his friend and protector, Tarzan of the Apes. With a cry of anguish Darnot sprang to the ape-man's side, and kneeling, lifted the latter's head in his arms, calling Tarzan's name aloud. There was no response, and then D'Arnot placed his ear above the man's heart. To his joy he heard its steady beating beneath. Carefully he lifted Tarzan to the cot, and then, after closing and bolting the door, he lighted one of the lamps and examined the wound. The bullet had struck a glancing blow upon the skull. There was an ugly flesh wound, but no signs of a fracture of the skull. D'Arnot breathed a sigh of relief, and went about bathing the blood from Tarzan's face. Soon the cool water revived him, and presently he opened his eyes to look in questioning surprise at D'Arnot. The latter had bound the wound with pieces of cloth, and as he saw that Tarzan had regained consciousness, he arose and going to the table wrote a message, which he handed to the ape-man, explaining the terrible mistake he had made and how thankful he was that the wound was not more serious. Tarzan, after reading the message, sat on the edge of the couch and laughed. "'It is nothing,' he said in French, and then, his vocabulary failing him, he wrote, "'You should have seen what Volgani did to me, and Kerchak, and Turkos, before I killed them. Then you would laugh at such a little scratch.' D'Arnot handed Tarzan the two messages that had been left for him. Tarzan read the first one through with a look of sorrow on his face. The second one he turned over and over, searching for an opening. He had never seen a sealed envelope before. At length he handed it to D'Arnot. The Frenchman had been watching him, and knew that Tarzan was puzzled over the envelope. How strange it seemed that to a full-grown white man an envelope was a mystery. D'Arnot opened it, and handed the letter back to Tarzan. Sitting on a camp-stool, the ape-man spread the written sheet before him and read, To Tarzan of the Apes, Before I leave, let me add my thanks to those of Mr. Clayton for the kindness you have shown in permitting us the use of your cabin. That you never came to make friends with us has been a great regret to us. We should have liked so much to have seen and thanked our host. There is another I should like to thank also, but he did not come back, though I cannot believe that he is dead. I do not know his name. He is the great white giant who wore the diamond locket upon his breast. If you know him and can speak his language, carry my thanks to him, and tell him that I waited seven days for him to return. Tell him also that in my home in America, in the city of Baltimore, there will always be a welcome for him if he cares to come. 
I found a note you wrote me lying among the leaves beneath the tree near the cabin. I do not know how you learned to love me, who have never spoken to me, and I'm very sorry if it is true, for I have already given my heart to another. But know that I am always your friend, Jane Porter. Tarzan sat with gaze fixed upon the floor for nearly an hour. It was evident to him from the notes that they did not know that he and Tarzan of the Apes were one and the same. "'I have given my heart to another,' he repeated over and over again to himself. Then she did not love him. How could she have pretended love, and raised him to such a pinnacle of hope only to cast him down to such utter depths of despair? Maybe her kisses were only signs of friendship. How did he know?' who knew nothing of the customs of human beings. Suddenly he arose, and bidding Darnot good-night, as he had learned to do, threw himself upon the couch of ferns that had been Jane Porter's. Darnot extinguished the lamp, and lay down upon the cot. For a week they did little but rest, Darnot coaching Tarzan in French. At the end of that time the two men could converse quite easily. One night, as they were sitting within the cabin before retiring, Tarzan turned to Darnot. "'Where is America?' he said. Darnot pointed toward the northwest. "'Maybe thousands of miles across the ocean,' he replied. "'Why?' "'I am going there.' Darnot shook his head. "'It is impossible, my friend,' he said." Tarzan rose, and going to one of the cupboards, returned with a well-thumbed geography. Turning to a map of the world, he said, "'I have never quite understood all this. Explain it to me, please.' When Darnot had done so, showing him that the blue represented all the water on the earth, and the bits of other colors, the continents and islands, Tarzan asked him to point out the spot where they now were. Darnot did so. "'Now point out America.' said Tarzan. And as Darnot placed his finger upon North America, Tarzan smiled, and laid his palm upon the page, spanning the great ocean that lay between the two continents. "'You see, it is not so very far,' he said. "'Scarce the width of my hand.' Darnot laughed. How could he make the man understand? Then he took a pencil and made a tiny point upon the shore of Africa. "'This little mark,' he said, is many times larger upon this map than your cabin is upon the earth. Do you see now how very far it is? Tarzan thought for a long time. Do any white men live in Africa? he asked. Yes. Where are the nearest? Darnot pointed out a spot on the shore just north of them. So close? asked Tarzan in surprise. "'Yes,' said Darnot, "'but it is not close.' "'Have they big boats to cross the ocean?' "'Yes.' "'We shall go there to-morrow,' announced Tarzan. Again Darnot smiled and shook his head. "'It is too far. We should die long before we reach them.' "'Do you wish to stay here, then, for ever?' asked Tarzan. "'No,' said Darnot. "'Then we shall start to-morrow.' I do not like it here longer. I should rather die than remain here. Well, answered Darnot with a shrug, I do not know, my friend, but
but that I also would rather die than remain here. If, if you go, I shall go with you. It is settled, then, said Tarzan. I shall start for America to-morrow. How will you get to America without money? asked Arnaud. What is money? inquired Tarzan. It took a long time to make him understand even imperfectly. How do men get money? he asked at last. They work for it. Very well, I will work for it, then. No, my friend, returned Arnaud. You need not worry about money, nor need you work for it. I have enough money for two, enough for twenty, much more than is good for one man, and you shall have all you need if ever we reach civilization. So on the following day they started north along the shore, each man carrying a rifle and ammunition, besides bedding and some food and cooking utensils. The latter seemed to Tarzan a most useless encumbrance, so he threw his away. "'But you must learn to eat cooked food, my friend,' remonstrated Darnot. "'No civilized men eat raw flesh.' "'There will be time enough when I reach civilization,' said Tarzan. "'I do not like the things, and they only spoil the taste of good meat.' For a month they travelled north, sometimes finding food in plenty, and again going hungry for days. They saw no signs of natives, nor were they molested by wild beasts. Their journey was a miracle of ease. Tarzan asked questions and learned rapidly. Darnot taught him many of the refinements of civilization, even to the use of knife and fork, but sometimes Tarzan would drop them in disgust and grasp his food in his strong brown hands, tearing it with his molars like a wild beast. Then Darnot would expostulate with him, saying, you must not eat like a brute, Tarzan, while I am trying to make a gentleman of you. Mon Dieu! Gentlemen, do not thus. It is terrible. Tarzan would grin sheepishly and pick up his knife and fork again, but at heart he hated them. On the journey he told Darnot about the great chest he had seen the sailors bury, of how he had dug it up and carried it to the gathering place of the apes, and buried it there. "'It must be the treasure-chest of Professor Porter,' said Darnot. "'It is too bad, but of course you did not know.' Then Tarzan recalled the letter written by Jane to her friend, the one he had stolen when they first came to his cabin, and now he knew what was in the chest and what it meant to Jane. "'Tomorrow we shall go back after it,' he announced to Darnot. "'Go back!' exclaimed Darnot. But, my dear fellow, we have now been three weeks upon the march. It would require three more to return to the treasure, and then, with that enormous weight which required, you say, four sailors to carry, it would be months before we had again reached this spot. It must be done, my friend, insisted Tarzan. You may go on towards civilization, and I will return for the treasure. I can go very much faster alone." "'I have a better plan, Tarzan,' exclaimed Arnaud. "'We shall go on together to the nearest settlement, and there we will charter a boat, and sail back down the coast for the treasure, and so transport it easily. That will be safer and quicker, and also not require us to be separated. What do you think of that plan?' "'Very well,' said Tarzan. "'The treasure will be there whenever we go for it, and while I could fetch it now—' and catch up with you in a moon or two, 
I shall feel safer for you to know that you are not alone on the trail. When I see how helpless you are, Darnot, I often wonder how the human race has escaped annihilation all these ages which you tell me about. Why, Sabor, single-handed, could exterminate a thousand of you. Darnot laughed. You will think more highly of your genus when you have seen its armies and navies, its great cities, and its mighty engineering works. Then you will realize that it is mind, and not muscle, that makes the human animal greater than the mighty beasts of your jungle. Alone and unarmed, a single man is no match for any of the larger beasts. But if ten men were together, they would combine their wits and their muscles against their savage enemies, while the beasts, being unable to reason, would never think of combining against the men. Otherwise, Tarzan of the Apes, how long would you have lasted in the savage wilderness? You are right, Darnot, replied Tarzan, for if Kerchak had come to Tublat's aid that night at the Dum-Dum, there would have been an end of me. But Kerchak could never think far enough ahead to take advantage of any such opportunity. Even Kayla, my mother, could never plan ahead. She simply ate what she needed when she needed it and if the supply was very scarce, even though she found plenty for several meals, she would never gather any ahead. I remember that she used to think it very silly of me to burden myself with extra food upon the march, though she was quite glad to eat it with me, if the way chanced to be barren of sustenance. "'Then you knew your mother, Tarzan?' asked Darnot in surprise. "'Yes, she was a great fine ape.' larger than I, and weighing twice as much. "'And your father?' asked Darnot. "'I did not know him. Kayla told me he was a white ape, and hairless like myself. I know now that he must have been a white man.' Darnot looked long and earnestly at his companion. "'Tarzan,' he said at length, "'it is impossible that the ape Kayla was your mother. If such a thing can be, which I doubt.' You would have inherited some of the characteristics of the ape, but you have not. You are pure man, and I should say, the offspring of highly bred and intelligent parents. Have you not the slightest clue to your past? Not the slightest, replied Tarzan. No writings in the cabin that might have told something of the lives of its original inmates? I have read everything that was in the cabin with the exception of one book, which I know now to be written in a language other than English. Possibly you can read it. Tarzan fished the little black diary from the bottom of his quiver, and handed it to his companion. Darnot glanced at the title page. It is the diary of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, an English nobleman, and it is written in French, he said. Then he proceeded to read the diary that had been written over twenty years before, and which recorded the details of the story which we already know, the story of adventure, hardships, and sorrow of John Clayton and his wife Alice, from the day they left England until an hour before he was struck down by Kerchak. Darnot read aloud. At times his voice broke, and he was forced to stop reading for the pitiful hopelessness that spoke between the lines. Occasionally he glanced at Tarzan, but the ape-man sat upon his haunches, like a carven image, 
his eyes fixed upon the ground. Only when the little babe was mentioned did the tone of the diary alter from the habitual note of despair which had crept into it by degrees after the first two months upon the shore. Then the passages were tinged with a subdued happiness that was even sadder than the rest. One entry showed an almost hopeful spirit. Today our little boy is six months old. He is sitting in Alice's lap beside the table where I am writing. A happy, healthy, perfect child. Somehow, even against all reason, I seem to see him a grown man, taking his father's place in the world, the second John Clayton, and bringing added honors to the house of Greystoke. There, as though to give my prophecy the weight of his endorsement, he has grabbed my pen in his chubby fists, and with his ink-begrimed little fingers has placed the seal of his tiny fingerprints upon the page. And there, on the margin of the page, were the partially blurred imprints of four wee fingers and the outer half of the thumb. When Darnot had finished the diary, the two men sat in silence for some minutes. "'Well, Tarzan of the Apes, what think you?' asked Darnot. "'Does not this little book clear up the mystery of your parentage?' Why, man, you are Lord Greystoke. The book speaks of but one child, he replied. Its little skeleton lay in the crib, where it died crying for nourishment, from the first time I entered the cabin until Professor Porter's party buried it, with its father and mother, beside the cabin. No, that was the babe that book speaks of, and the mystery of my origin is deeper than before for I have thought much of late of the possibility of that cabin having been my birthplace. I am afraid that Kayla spoke the truth," he concluded sadly. Darnot shook his head. He was unconvinced, and in his mind had sprung the determination to prove the correctness of his theory, for he had discovered the key which alone could unlock the mystery, or consign it forever to the realms of the unfathomable. A week later the two men came suddenly upon a clearing in the forest. In the distance were several buildings surrounded by a strong palisade. Between them and the enclosure stretched a cultivated field in which a number of negroes were working. The two halted at the edge of the jungle. Tarzan fitted his bow with a poisoned arrow, but Darnot placed a hand upon his arm. "'What would you do, Tarzan?' he asked. They will try to kill us if they see us, replied Tarzan. I prefer to be the killer. Maybe they are friends, suggested Tarnot. They are black, was Tarzan's only reply. And again he drew back his shaft. You must not, Tarzan, cried Darnot. White men do not kill wantonly. Mon Dieu, but you have much to learn. I pity the ruffian who crosses you, my wild man. When I take you to Paris, I will have my hands full keeping your neck from beneath the guillotine." Tarzan lowered his bow, and smiled. "'I do not know why I should kill the blacks back there in my jungle, but not kill them here. Suppose Numa the lion should spring out upon us. I should say then, I presume, "'Good morning, Monsieur Numa. How is Madame Numa, eh?' "'Wait until the blacks spring upon you.' replied Darnot. Then you may kill them. Do not assume that men are your enemies until they prove it. Come, said Tarzan, let us go and present ourselves to be killed. 
and he started straight across the field, his head held high and the tropical sun beating upon his smooth brown skin. Behind him came Darnot, clothed in some garments which had been discarded at the cabin by Clayton when the officers of the French cruiser had fitted him out in more presentable fashion. Presently one of the blacks looked up, and beholding Tarzan, turned, shrieking toward the palisade. In an instant the air was filled with cries of terror from the fleeing gardeners, but before any had reached the palisade, a white man emerged from the enclosure, rifle in hand, to discover the cause of the emotion. What he saw brought his rifle to his shoulder, and Tarzan of the apes would have felt cold lead once again, had not Darnot cried loudly to the man with the leveled gun, "'Do not fire! We are friends!' "'Halt, then!' was the reply. "'Stop, Tarzan!' cried Darnot. "'He thinks we are enemies!' Tarzan dropped into a walk, and together he and Darnot advanced toward the white man by the gate. The latter eyed them in puzzled bewilderment. "'What manner of men are you?' he asked in French. "'White men,' replied Darnot. "'We have been lost in the jungle for a long time.' The man had lowered his rifle and now advanced with outstretched hand. "'I am Father Constantine of the French mission here,' he said, "'and I am glad to welcome you.' "'This is Monsieur Tarzan, Father Constantine.' replied Darnot, indicating the ape-man, and as the priest extended his hand to Tarzan, Darnot added, "'And I am Paul Darnot of the French Navy.' Father Constantine took the hand which Tarzan extended in imitation of the priest's act, while the latter took in the superb physique and handsome face in one quick, keen glance. And thus came Tarzan of the apes to the first outpost of civilization." For a week they remained there, and the ape-man, keenly observant, learned much of the ways of men. Meanwhile black women sewed white duck garments for himself and Darnot, so that they might continue their journey properly clothed. End of chapter Chapter Twenty Six of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Six The Height of Civilization. Another month brought them to a little group of buildings at the mouth of a wide river, and there Tarzan saw many boats, and was filled with the timidity of the wild thing by the sight of many men. Gradually he became accustomed to the strange noises and the odd ways of civilization, so that presently none might know that two short months before, this handsome Frenchman in immaculate white ducks, who laughed and chatted with the gayest of them, had been swinging naked through primeval forests to pounce upon some unwary victim, which, raw, was to fill his savage belly. The knife and fork so contemptuously flung aside a month before, Tarzan now manipulated as exquisitely as did the polished Darnot. 
So apt a pupil had he been that the young Frenchman had labored assiduously to make of Tarzan of the Apes a polished gentleman in so far as nicety of manners and speech were concerned. "'God has made you a gentleman at heart, my friend,' Darnot had said, "'but we want his works to show upon the exterior also.' As soon as they had reached the little port, Darnot had cabled his government of his safety, and requested a three months' leave, which had been granted. He had also cabled his bankers for funds, and the enforced wait of a month, under which both chafed, was due to their inability to charter a vessel for the return to Tarzan's jungle after the treasure. During their stay at the coast town, Monsieur Tarzan became the wonder of both whites and blacks because of several occurrences which to Tarzan seemed the merest of nothings. Once a huge black, crazed by drink, had run amuck and terrorized the town, until his evil star had led him to where the black-haired French giant lolled upon the veranda of the hotel. Mounting the broad steps, with brandished knife, the negro made straight for a party of four men sitting at a table, sipping the inevitable absinthe. Shouting in alarm, the four took to their heels, and then the black spied Tarzan. With a roar he charged the ape-man, while half a hundred heads peered from sheltering windows and doorways to witness the butchering of the poor Frenchman by the giant black. Tarzan met the rush with the fighting smile that the joy of battle always brought to his lips. As the negro closed upon him, steel muscles gripped the black wrist of the uplifted knife-hand, and a single swift wrench left the hand dangling below a broken bone. With the pain and surprise, the madness left the black man, and as Tarzan dropped back into his chair, the fellow turned, crying with agony, and dashed wildly toward the native village. On another occasion, as Tarzan and D'Arnot sat at dinner with a number of other whites, the talk fell upon lions and lion-hunting. Opinion was divided as to the bravery of the king of beasts, some maintaining that he was an errant coward, but all agreeing that it was with a feeling of greater security that they gripped their express rifles when the monarch of the jungle roared about a camp at night. D'Arnot and Tarzan had agreed that his past be kept secret, and so none other than the French officer knew of the ape-man's familiarity with the beasts of the jungle. "'Monsieur Tarzan has not expressed himself,' said one of the party. "'A man of his prowess who has spent some time in Africa, as I understand Monsieur Tarzan has, must have had experiences with lions, yes?' "'Some,' replied Tarzan dryly enough to know that each of you are right in your judgment of the characteristics of the lions you have met. But one might as well judge all blacks by the fellow who ran amuck last week, or decide that all whites are cowards because one has met a cowardly white. There is as much individually among the lower orders, gentlemen, as there is among ourselves. Today we may go out and stumble upon a lion which is over-timid, he runs away from us. Tomorrow we may meet his uncle or his twin brother, and our friends wonder why we do not return from the jungle. For myself, I always assume that a lion is ferocious, and so I am never caught off my guard. There would be little pleasure in hunting, retorted the first speaker, if one is afraid of the thing he hunts. Darnot smiled. Tarzan afraid! 
"'I do not exactly understand what you mean by fear,' said Tarzan. "'Like lions, fear is a different thing in different men. But to me the only pleasure in the hunt is the knowledge that the hunted thing has power to harm me as much as I have to harm him. If I went out with a couple of rifles and a gun-bearer, and twenty or thirty beaters, to hunt a lion, I should not feel that the lion had much chance, and so the pleasure of the hunt would be lessened in proportion to the increased safety which I felt. Then I am to take it that Monsieur Tarzan would prefer to go naked into the jungle, armed only with a jackknife, to kill the king of beasts, <laughs> laughed the other, good-naturedly, but with the merest touch of sarcasm in his tone. And a piece of rope, added Tarzan. And then the deep roar of a lion sounded from the distant jungle, as though to challenge whoever dared entered the lists with him. There is your opportunity, Monsieur Tarzan bantered the Frenchman. "'I am not hungry,' said Tarzan simply. The men laughed, all but Darnot. He alone knew that a savage beast had spoken its simple reason through the lips of the ape-man. "'But you are afraid, just as any of us would be, to go out there naked, armed only with a knife and a piece of rope,' said the banterer. "'Is it not so?' "'No,' replied Tarzan. Only a fool performs any act without reason. Five thousand francs is a reason, said the other. I wager that amount you cannot bring back a lion from the jungle, under the conditions we have named, naked and armed only with a knife and a piece of rope. Tarzan glanced toward Darnot and nodded his head. Make it ten thousand, said Darnot. Done, replied the other. Tarzan arose. I shall have to leave my clothes at the edge of the settlement, so that if I do not return before daylight I shall have something to wear through the streets. "'You are not going now,' exclaimed the wagerer. "'At night?' "'Why not?' asked Tarzan. "'Numa walks abroad at night. It will be easier to find him.' "'No,' said the other. "'I do not want your blood upon my hands. It will be foolhardy enough if you go forth by day.' "'I shall go now,' replied Tarzan, and went to his room for his knife and rope. The men accompanied him to the edge of the jungle, where he left his clothes in a small storehouse. But when he would have entered the blackness of the undergrowth, they tried to dissuade him, and the wagerer was most insistent of all that he abandon his foolhardy venture. "'I will exceed that you have won,' he said, and the ten thousand francs are yours if you will but give up this foolish attempt which can only end in your death tarzan laughed and in another moment the jungle had swallowed him the men stood silent for some moments and then slowly turned and walked back to the hotel veranda tarzan had no sooner entered the jungle than he took to the trees and it was with a feeling of exultant freedom that he swung once more through the forest branches this was life ah how he loved it civilization held nothing like this in its narrow and circumscribed sphere hemmed in by restrictions and conventionalities even clothes were a hindrance and a nuisance at last he was free he had not realized what a prisoner he had been how easy it would be to circle back to the coast and then make toward the south and his own jungle and cabin now he caught the scent of numa for he was travelling upwind. 
Presently his quick ears detected the familiar sound of padded feet, and the brushing of a huge fur-clad body through the undergrowth. Tarzan came quietly above the unsuspecting beast, and silently stalked him until he came into a little patch of moonlight. Then the quick noose settled and tightened around the tawny throat, and, as he had done it a hundred times in the past, Tarzan made fast the end to a strong branch, and while the beast fought and clawed for freedom, dropped to the ground behind him, and leaping upon the great back, plunged his long thin blade a dozen times into the fierce heart. Then, with his foot upon the carcass of Numa, he raised his voice in the awesome victory cry of his savage tribe. For a moment Tarzan stood irresolute, swayed by conflicting emotions of loyalty to Darnot and a mighty lust for the freedom of his own jungle. At last the vision of a beautiful face, and the memory of warm lips crushed to his, dissolved the fascinating picture he had been drawing of his old life. The ape-man threw the warm carcass of Numa across his shoulders, and took to the trees once more. The men upon the veranda had sat for an hour, almost in silence. They had tried ineffectually to converse on various subjects, and always the thing uppermost in the mind of each had caused the conversation to lapse. "'Mon Dieu!' said the wagerer at length. "'I can endure it no longer.' I'm going into the jungle with my express, and bring back that madman. I will go with you, said one. And I, and I, and I, chorused the others. As though the suggestion had broken the spell of some horrid nightmare, they hastened to their various quarters, and presently were headed toward the jungle, each one heavily armed. God, what was that? suddenly cried one of the party, an Englishman as Tarzan's savage cry came faintly to their ears. "'I heard the same thing once before,' said a Belgian, "'when I was in the gorilla country. My carrier said it was the cry of a great bull-ape who has made a kill.' Darnot remembered Clayton's description of the awful roar with which Tarzan had announced his kills, and he half-smiled in spite of the horror which filled him to think that the uncanny sound could have issued from a human throat, from the lips of his friend. As the party stood finally near the edge of the jungle, debating as to the best distribution of their forces, they were startled by a low laugh near them, and turning, beheld advancing toward them a giant figure bearing a dead lion upon its broad shoulders. Even Darnot was thunderstruck for it seemed impossible that the man could have so quickly dispatched the lion with the pitiful weapons he had taken, or that alone he could have borne the huge carcass through the tangled jungle. The men crowded about Tarzan with many questions, but his only answer was a laughing deprecation of his feet. To Tarzan it was as though one should eulogize a butcher for his heroism in killing a cow, for Tarzan had killed so often for food and for self-preservation that the act seemed anything but remarkable to him. But he was indeed a hero in the eyes of these men, men accustomed to hunting big game. Incidentally, he had won ten thousand francs, for Darnot insisted that he keep it all. This was a very important item to Tarzan, who was just commencing to realize the power which lay beyond the little pieces of metal and paper which always changed hands when human beings rode, or ate, or slept, or clothed themselves, or drank or worked or played, 
or sheltered themselves from the rain or cold or sun. It had become evident to Tarzan that without money one must die. D'Arnot had told him not to worry, since he had more than enough for both, but the ape-man was learning many things, and one of them was that people looked down upon one who had accepted money from another, without giving something of equal value in exchange. Shortly after the episode of the lion-hunt, D'Arnot succeeded in chartering an ancient tub for the coastwise trip to Tarzan's landlocked harbor. It was a happy morning for them both when the little vessel weighed anchor and made for the open sea. The trip to the beach was uneventful, and the morning after they dropped anchor before the cabin, Tarzan, garbed once more in his jungle regalia and carrying a spade, set out alone for the amphitheater of the apes where lay the treasure. Late the next day he returned, bearing the great chest upon his shoulder, and at sunrise the little vessel worked through the harbor's mouth and took up her northward journey. Three weeks later Tarzan and D'Arnot were passengers on board a French steamer born for Lyon, and after a few days in that city D'Arnot took Tarzan to Paris. The ape-man was anxious to proceed to America, but D'Arnot insisted that he must accompany him to Paris first, nor would he divulge the nature of the urgent necessity upon which he based his demand. One of the first things which D'Arnot accomplished after their arrival was to arrange to visit a high official of the police department, an old friend, and to take Tarzan with him. Adroitly D'Arnot led the conversation from point to point, until the policeman had explained to the interested Tarzan many of the methods in vogue for apprehending and identifying criminals. Not the least interesting to Tarzan was the part played by fingerprints in this fascinating science. "'But of what value are these imprints?' asked Tarzan, when, after a few years, the lines upon the fingers are entirely changed by the wearing out of the old tissue and the growth of new. "'The lines never change,' replied the official. "'From infancy to senility, the fingerprints of an individual change only in size, except as injuries alter the loops and whorls. But if imprints have been taken of the thumb and four fingers of both hands, one must needs lose all entirely to escape identification. It is marvellous, exclaimed Arnaud. I wonder what the lines upon my own fingers may resemble. We can soon see, replied the police officer, and ringing a bell he summoned an assistant to whom he issued a few directions. The man left the room, but presently returned with a little hardwood box which he placed on his superior's desk. Now, said the officer, you shall have your fingerprints in a second. He drew from the little case a square of plate glass, a little tube of thick ink, a rubber roller, and a few snowy white cards. Squeezing a drop of ink onto the glass, he spread it back and forth with a rubber roller until the entire surface of the glass was coated to his satisfaction with a very thin and uniform layer of ink. Place the four fingers of your right hand upon the glass, thus, he said to Darnot. Now the thumb. That is right. Now place them in just the same position upon this card. Here, no, no a little to the right. We must leave room for the thumb and the fingers of the left hand. There, that's it. Now the same with the left. Come, Tarzan, cried Darnot. Let's see what your whorls look like. 
Tarzan complied readily, asking many questions of the officer during the operation. "'Do fingerprints show racial characteristics?' he asked. "'Could you determine, for example, solely from fingerprints, whether the subject was Negro or Caucasian?' "'I think not,' replied the officer. "'Could the fingerprints of an ape be detected from those of a man?' probably, because the apes would be far simpler than those of the higher organism. But a cross between an ape and a man might show the characteristics of either progenitor, continued Tarzan. Yes, I should think likely, responded the official, but the science has not progressed sufficiently to render it exact enough in such matters. I should hate to trust its findings further than to differentiate between individuals. There it is absolute. No two people born into the world probably have ever had identical lines upon all their digits. It is very doubtful if any single fingerprint will ever be exactly duplicated by any finger other than the one which originally made it. Does the comparison require much time or labor? asked Arnaud. Ordinarily, but a few moments, if the impressions are distinct. Darnot drew a little black book from his pocket and commenced turning the pages. Tarzan looked at the book in surprise. How did Darnot come to have his book? Presently, Darnot stopped at a page on which were five tiny little smudges. He handed the open book to the policeman. Are these imprints similar to mine, or Monsieur Tarzan's, or can you say that they are identical with either? The officer drew a powerful glass from his desk and examined all three specimens carefully, making notations, meanwhile, upon a pad of paper. Tarzan realized now what was the meaning of their visit to the police officer. The answer to his life's riddle lay in these tiny marks. With tense nerves he sat leaning forward in his chair, but suddenly he relaxed and dropped back, smiling. D'Arnot looked at him in surprise. "'You forget that for twenty years the dead body of the child who made those fingerprints lay in the cabin of his father, and that all my life I have seen it lying there,' said Tarzan bitterly. The policeman looked up in astonishment. "'Go ahead, Captain, with your examination.' said Darnot. We will tell you the story later, provided Monsieur Tarzan is agreeable. Tarzan nodded his head. But you are mad, my dear Darnot, he insisted. Those little fingers are buried on the west coast of Africa. I do not know as to that, Tarzan, replied Darnot. It is possible, but if you are not the son of John Clayton, then how in heaven's name did you come into that god-forsaken jungle where no white man other than john clayton had ever set foot you forget kayla said tarzan i do not even consider her replied d'arnot the friends had walked to the broad window overlooking the boulevard as they talked for some time they stood there gazing out upon the busy throng beneath each wrapped in his own thoughts it takes some time to compare fingerprints, thought Darnot, turning to look at the police officer. To his astonishment he saw the official leaning back in his chair, hastily scanning the contents of the little black diary. Darnot coughed. The policeman looked up, and, catching his eye, raised his finger to admonish silence. 
D'Arnot turned back to the window, and presently the police officer spoke. "'Gentlemen,' he said. Both turned toward him. "'There is evidently a great deal at stake which must hinge to a greater or lesser extent upon the absolute correctness of this comparison. I therefore ask that you leave the entire matter in my hands until Monsieur Desquerc, our expert, returns. It will be but a matter of a few days.' "'I had hoped to know at once,' said D'Arnot. "'Monsieur Tarzan sails for America tomorrow. "'I will promise that you can cable him a report within two weeks,' replied the officer. "'But what it will be I dare not say. "'There are resemblances. "'Yet, well, we had better leave it for Monsieur de Kerk to solve.'" End of chapter Chapter Twenty Seven of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Seven The Giant Again. A taxicab drew up before an old-fashioned residence upon the outskirts of Baltimore. A man of about forty, well-built and with strong, regular features, stepped out, and paying the chauffeur, dismissed him. A moment later the passenger was entering the library of the old home. "'Ah, Mr. Candler!' exclaimed an old man, rising to greet him. "'Good evening, my dear professor,' cried the man, extending a cordial hand. "'Who admitted you?' asked the professor. "'Esmeralda!' "'Then she will acquaint Jane with the fact that you are here,' said the old man. "'No, professor,' replied Candler, "'for I came primarily to see you.' "'Ah, I am honoured,' said Professor Porter. "'Professor,' continued Robert Candler, with great deliberation, as though carefully weighing his words, I have come this evening to speak with you about Jane. You know my aspirations, and you have been generous enough to approve my suit. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter fidgeted in his armchair. The subject always made him uncomfortable. He could not understand why. Candler was a splendid match. But Jane, continued Candler, I cannot understand her. She puts me off first on one ground and then another. I have always the feeling that she breathes a sigh of relief every time I bid her good-bye. "'Tut-tut,' said Professor Porter. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Candler. Jane is a most obedient daughter. She will do precisely as I tell her.' "'Then I can still count on your support?' asked Candler, a tone of relief marking his voice. "'Certainly, sir, certainly, sir,' exclaimed Professor Porter. "'How could you doubt it?' "'There is young Clayton, you know,' suggested Candler. "'He has been hanging about for months. "'I don't know that Jane cares for him, "'but beside his title they say he has inherited "'a very considerable estate from his father, "'and it might not be strange if he finally won her, "'unless—' and Candler paused. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Candler, unless what?' 
unless you see fit to request that Jane and I be married at once, said Candler, slowly and distinctly. I have already suggested to Jane that it would be desirable, said Professor Porter, sadly, for we can no longer afford to keep up this house and live as her associations demand. What was her reply? asked Candler. "'She said she was not ready to marry anyone yet,' replied Professor Porter, "'and that we could go and live upon the farm in northern Wisconsin which her mother left her. "'It is a little more than self-supporting. "'The tenants have always made a living from it, "'and been able to send Jane a trifle beside each year. "'She is planning on our going up there the first of the week. "'Philander and Mr. Clayton have already gone to get things in readiness for us.' "'Clayton has gone there?' exclaimed Candler, visibly chagrined. "'Why was I not told? I would gladly have gone and seen that every comfort was provided.' "'Jane feels that we are already too much in your debt, Mr. Candler,' said Professor Porter. Candler was about to reply, when the sound of footsteps came from the hall without, and Jane entered the room. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' she exclaimed, pausing on the threshold. "'I thought you were alone, Papa.' "'It is only I, Jane,' said Candler, who had risen. "'Won't you come in and join the family group? We were just speaking of you.' "'Thank you,' said Jane, entering and taking the chair Candler placed for her. "'I only wanted to tell Papa that Toby is coming down from the college tomorrow to pack his books. I want you to be sure, Papa, to indicate all that you can do without until fall.' Please don't carry this entire library to Wisconsin, as you would have carried it to Africa if I had not put my foot down. "'Was Toby here?' asked Professor Porter. "'Yes, I just left him. He and Esmeralda are exchanging religious experiences on the back porch now.' "'Tut, tut! I must see him at once,' cried the Professor. "'Excuse me just a moment, children.' And the old man hastened from the room. As soon as he was out of earshot, Candler turned to Jane. "'See here, Jane,' he said bluntly, "'how long is this thing going on like this? You haven't refused to marry me, but you haven't promised either. I want to get the license tomorrow, so that we can be married quietly before you leave for Wisconsin. I don't care for any fuss or feathers, and I'm sure you don't either.' The girl turned cold, but she held her head bravely. "'Your father wishes it, you know,' added Candler. "'Yes, I know.' She spoke scarcely above a whisper. "'Do you realize that you are buying me, Mr. Candler?' she said finally, and in a cold, level voice. "'Buying me for a few paltry dollars? Of course you do, Robert Candler, and the hope of just such a contingency was in your mind when you loaned Papa the money for that hair-brained escapade, which but for a most mysterious circumstance would have been surprisingly successful. But you, Mr. Candler, would have been the most surprised. You had no idea that the venture would succeed. You are too good a businessman for that. And you are too good a businessman to loan money for buried treasure-seeking, or to loan money without security, unless you had some special object in view." You knew that without security you had a greater hold on the honor of the porters than with it. 
You knew the one best way to force me to marry you, without seeming to force me. You have never mentioned the loan. In any other man I should have thought that the prompting of a magnanimous and noble character. But you are deep, Mr. Robert Candler. I know you better than you think I know you. I shall certainly marry you if there is no other way. But let us understand each other once and for all." While she spoke, Robert Candler had alternately flushed and paled, and when she ceased speaking he arose, and with a cynical smile upon his strong face, said, "'You surprise me, Jane. I thought you had more self-control, more pride. Of course you are right. I am buying you, and I knew that you knew it, and I thought you would prefer to pretend that it was otherwise.' I should have thought your self-respect and your porter pride would have shrunk from admitting, even to yourself, that you were a bought woman. But have it your own way, dear girl," he added lightly. I am going to have you, and that is all that interests me." Without a word the girl turned and left the room. Jane was not married before she left with her father and Esmeralda for her little Wisconsin farm and as she coldly bid Robert Candler good-bye as her train pulled out, he called to her that he would join them in a week or two. At their destination they were met by Clayton and Mr. Philander, in a huge touring car belonging to the former, and quickly whirled away through the dense northern woods towards the little farm which the girl had not visited before since childhood. The farmhouse, which stood on a little elevation some hundred yards from the tenant-house, had undergone a complete transformation during the three weeks that Clayton and Mr. Philander had been there. The former had imported a small army of carpenters and plasterers, plumbers and painters, from a distant city, and what had been but a dilapidated shell when they reached it was now a cosy little two-story house filled with every modern convenience procurable in so short a time. "'Why, Mr. Clayton, what have you done?' cried Jane Porter her heart sinking within her as she realized the probable size of the expenditure that had been made. "'Shh!' cautioned Clayton. "'Don't let your father guess. If you don't tell him, then he will never notice, and I simply couldn't think of him living in the terrible squalor and sordidness which Mr. Philander and I found. It was so little when I would like to do so much, Jane. For his sake, please, never mention it.' "'But you know that we can't repay you.' cried the girl. Why do you want to put me under such terrible obligations?" "'Don't, Jane,' said Clayton sadly. If it had been just you, believe me, I wouldn't have done it, for I knew from the start that it would only hurt me in your eyes, but I couldn't think of that dear old man living in the hole we found here. Won't you please believe that I did it just for him, and give me that little crumb of pleasure at least?' "'I do believe you, Mr. Clayton,' said the girl, "'because I know you are big enough and generous enough to have done it just for him. And, oh, Cecil, I wish I might repay you as you deserve, as you would wish.' "'Why can't you, Jane?' "'Because I love another.' "'Candler?' "'No. But you are going to marry him. He told me as much before I left Baltimore.' The girl winced. I do not love him," she said, almost proudly. "'Is it because of the money, Jane?' She nodded. 
Then am I so much less desirable than Candler? I have money enough and far more for every need, he said bitterly. I do not love you, Cecil, she said, but I respect you. If I must disgrace myself by such a bargain with any man, I prefer that it be one I already despise. I should loathe the man to whom I sold myself without love, whomsoever he might be. You will be happier, she concluded, alone with my respect and friendship, than with me and my contempt. He did not press the matter further. But if ever a man had murder in his heart, it was William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke, when, a week later, Robert Candler drew up before the farmhouse in his purring six-cylinder. A week passed, a tense, uneventful, but uncomfortable week for all the inmates of the little Wisconsin farmhouse. Candler was insistent that Jane marry him at once. At length she gave in from sheer loathing of the continued and hateful importuning. It was agreed that on the morrow Candler was to drive to town and bring back the license and a minister. Clayton had wanted to leave as soon as the plan was announced, but the girl's tired, hopeless look kept him. He could not desert her. Something might happen yet, he tried to console himself by thinking, and in his heart he knew that it would require but a tiny spark to turn his hatred for Candler into the bloodlust of the killer. Early the next morning Candler set out for town. In the east smoke could be seen lying low over the forest, for a fire had been raging for a week not far from them, but the wind still lay in the west, and no danger threatened them. About noon Jane started off for a walk. She would not let Clayton accompany her. She wanted to be alone, she said, and he respected her wishes. In the house Professor Porter and Mr. Philander were immersed in the absorbing discussion of some weighty scientific problem. Esmeralda dozed in the kitchen, and Clayton, heavy-eyed after a sleepless night, threw himself down upon the couch in the living-room and soon dropped into a fitful slumber. To the east the black smoke-clouds rose higher into the heavens. Suddenly they eddied, and then commenced to drift rapidly toward the west. On and on they came. The inmates of the tenant-house were gone, for it was market-day, and none was there to see the rapid approach of the fiery demon. Soon the flames had spanned the road to the south and cut off Candler's return. A little fluctuation of the wind now carried the path of the forest-fire to the north, then blew back, and the flames nearly stood still as though held in leash by some master hand. Suddenly, out of the northeast, a great black car came careening down the road. With a jolt it stopped before the cottage, and a black-haired giant leaped out to run up onto the porch. Without a pause he rushed into the house. On the couch lay Clayton. The man started in surprise, but with a bound was at the side of the sleeping man. Shaking him roughly by the shoulder, he cried, "'My God, Clayton, are you all mad here? Don't you know you are nearly surrounded by fire?' Where is Miss Porter? Clayton sprang to his feet. He did not recognize the man, but he understood the words and was upon the veranda in a bound. Scott! he cried, and then dashing back into the house. Jane! Jane! Where are you? In an instant Esmeralda, Professor Porter, and Mr. Philander had joined the two men. Where is Miss Jane? 
cried Clayton, seizing Esmeralda by the shoulders and shaking her roughly. "'Oh, Gabarelle, Mr. Clayton, she done gone for a walk!' "'Hasn't she come back yet?' And, without waiting for a reply, Clayton dashed out into the yard, followed by the others. "'Which way did she go?' cried the black-haired giant of Esmeralda. "'Down that road!' cried the frightened woman, pointing toward the south where a mighty wall of roaring flames shut out the view. "'Put these people in the other car!' shouted the stranger to Clayton. "'I saw one as I drove up. And get them out of here, by the north road. Leave my car here. If I find Miss Porter, we shall need it. If I don't, no one will need it. Do as I say.' as Clayton hesitated, and then he saw the lithe figure bound away across the clearing toward the northwest where the forest still stood, untouched by flame. In each rose the unaccountable feeling that a great responsibility had been raised from their shoulders, a kind of implicit confidence in the power of the stranger to save Jane if she could be saved. "'Who was that?' asked Professor Porter. "'I do not know,' replied Clayton. He called me by name, and he knew Jane, for he asked for her, and he called Esmeralda by name. "'There was something most startlingly familiar about him,' exclaimed Mr. Flander. "'And yet, bless me, I know I never saw him before.' "'Tut, tut!' cried Professor Porter. "'Most remarkable. Who could it have been, and why do I feel that Jane is safe, now that he has set out in search of her?' "'I can't tell you, Professor.' said Clayton soberly, but I know I have the same uncanny feeling. "'But come,' he cried, "'we must get out of here ourselves, or we shall be shut off.' And the party hastened toward Clayton's car. When Jane turned to retrace her steps homeward, she was alarmed to note how near the stroke of the forest fire seemed, and as she hastened onward her alarm became almost a panic when she perceived that the rushing flames were rapidly forcing their way between herself and the cottage. At length she was compelled to turn into the dense thicket and attempt to force her way to the west, in an effort to circle around the flames and reach the house. In a short time the futility of her attempt became apparent, and that her one hope lay in retracing her steps to the road and flying for her life to the south toward the town. The twenty minutes that it took her to regain the road was all that had been needed to cut off her retreat as effectually as her advance had been cut off before. A short run down the road brought her to a horrified stand, for there before her was another wall of flame. An arm of the main conflagration had shot out a half-mile south of its parent to embrace this tiny strip of road in its implacable clutches. Jane knew that it was useless again to attempt to force her way through the undergrowth. She had tried it once and failed. Now she realized that it would be but a matter of minutes ere the whole space between the north and the south would be a seething mass of billowing flames. Calmly the girl kneeled down in the dust of the roadway and prayed for strength to meet her fate bravely, and for the delivery of her father and her friends from death. Suddenly she heard her name being called aloud through the forest. "'Jane! Jane Porter!' It rang strong and clear, but in a strange voice. "'Here!' she called in reply. "'Here! In the roadway!' Then through the branches of the trees she saw a figure swinging with the speed of a squirrel. A veering of the wind blew a cloud of smoke about them, and she could no longer see the man who was speeding toward her, 
but suddenly she felt a great arm about her. Then she was lifted up, and she felt the rushing of the wind, and the occasional brush of a branch as she was borne along. She opened her eyes. Far below her lay the undergrowth and the hard earth. About her was the waving foliage of the forest. From tree to tree swung the giant figure which bore her, and it seemed to Jane that she was living over in a dream the experience that had been hers in that far African jungle. Oh, if it were but the same man who had borne her so swiftly through the tangled verdure on that other day! But that was impossible! Yet who else in all the world was there with the strength and agility to do what this man was now doing? She stole a sudden glance at the face close to hers, and then she gave a little frightened gasp. It was he! My forest man! she murmured. No, I must be delirious! Yes, your man, Jane Porter, your savage, primeval man, come out of the jungle to claim his mate, the woman who ran away from him, he added almost fiercely. I did not run away, she whispered. I would only consent to leave when they had waited a week for you to return. They had come to a point beyond the fire now, and he had turned back to the clearing. Side by side they were walking toward the cottage. The wind had changed once more, and the fire was burning back upon itself. Another hour like that, and it will be burned out. "'Why did you not return?' she asked. "'I was nursing Darnot. He was badly wounded.' "'Ah, I knew it!' she exclaimed. "'They said you had gone to join the blacks, that they were your people.' He laughed. "'But you did not believe them, Jane?' no what shall i call you she asked what is your name i was tarzan of the apes when you first knew me he said tarzan of the apes she cried and that was your note i answered when i left yes whose did you think it was i did not know only that it could not be yours for tarzan of the apes had written in english and you could not understand a word of any language Again he laughed. It is a long story, but it was I who wrote what I could not speak, and now Darnot has made matters worse by teaching me to speak French instead of English. Come, he added, jump into my car. We must overtake your father. They are only a little way ahead. As they drove along, he said, Then when you said in your note to Tarzan of the apes that you loved another, you might have met me? I might have, she answered simply. But in Baltimore, oh, how I have searched for you. They told me you would possibly be married by now, that a man named Candler had come up here to wed you. Is that true? Yes. Do you love him? No. Do you love me? She buried her face in her hands. I am promised to another... I cannot answer you, Tarzan of the Apes, she cried. You have answered. Now, tell me why you would marry one you do not love. My father owes him money. Suddenly there came back to Tarzan the memory of the letter he had read, and the name Robert Candler, and the hinted trouble which he had been unable to understand then. He smiled. If your father had not lost the treasure, you would not feel forced to keep your promise to this man Candler? 
I could ask him to release me. And if he refused? I have given my promise. He was silent for a moment. The car was plunging along the uneven road at a reckless pace, for the fire showed threateningly at their right, and another change of the wind might sweep it on with raging fury across this one avenue of escape. Finally they passed the danger point, and Tarzan reduced their speed. "'Suppose I should ask him,' ventured Tarzan. "'He would scarcely accede to the demand of a stranger,' said the girl, "'especially one who wanted me himself.' "'Turkoz did,' said Tarzan grimly. Jane shuddered, and looked fearfully up at the giant figure beside her, for she knew that he meant the great anthropoid he had killed in her defense. "'This is not the African jungle,' she said. "'You are no longer a savage beast. You are a gentleman, and gentlemen do not kill in cold blood.' "'I am still a wild beast at heart,' he said in a low voice, as though to himself." Again they were silent for a time. "'Jane,' said the man, at length, "'if you were free, would you marry me?' She did not reply at once, but he waited patiently. The girl was trying to collect her thoughts. What did she know of this strange creature at her side? What did he know of himself? Who was he? Who? His parents? Why, his very name echoed his mysterious origin and his savage life. He had no name. Could she be happy with this jungle waif? Could she find anything in common with a husband whose life had been spent at the treetops of an African wilderness, frolicking and fighting with fierce anthropoids, tearing his food from the quivering flank of fresh-killed prey, sinking his strong teeth into raw flesh, and tearing away his portion while his mates growled and fought about him for their share? Could he ever rise to her social sphere? Could she bear to think of sinking to his? Would either be happy in such a horrible misalliance? "'You do not answer,' he said. "'Do you shrink from wounding me?' "'I do not know what answer to make,' said Jane sadly. "'I do not know my own mind.' "'You do not love me, then?' he asked in a level tone. "'Do not ask me.' You will be happier without me. You were never meant for the formal restrictions and conventionalities of society. Civilization would become irksome to you, and in a little while you would long for the freedom of your old life, a life to which I am as totally unfitted as you to mine. I think I understand you, he replied quietly. I shall not urge you, for I would rather see you happy than to be happy myself. I see now that you could not be happy with—an ape." There was just the faintest tinge of bitterness in his voice. "'Don't,' she remonstrated. "'Don't say that. You do not understand.' But before she could go on, a sudden turn in the road brought them into the midst of a little hamlet. Before them stood Clayton's car, surrounded by the party he had brought from the cottage. End of chapter Chapter Twenty Eight: The Conclusion to Tarzan of the Apes. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 28 Conclusion At the sight of Jane, cries of relief and delight broke from every lip, and as Tarzan's car stopped beside the other, Professor Porter caught his daughter in his arms. For a moment no one noticed Tarzan sitting silently in his seat. Clayton was the first to remember, and, turning, held out his hand. "'How can we ever thank you?' he exclaimed. "'You have saved us all.' You called me by name at the cottage, but I do not seem to recall yours, though there is something very familiar about you. It is as though I had known you well under very different conditions a long time ago." Tarzan smiled as he took the proffered hand. "'You are quite right, Monsieur Clayton,' he said, in French. "'You will pardon me if I do not speak to you in English. I am just learning it and while I understand it fairly well, I speak it very poorly. "'But who are you?' insisted Clayton, speaking in French this time himself. "'Tarzan of the Apes.' Clayton started back in surprise. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'It is true!' And Professor Porter and Mr. Philander pressed forward to add their thanks to Clayton's, and to voice their surprise and pleasure at seeing their jungle friend so far from his savage home. The party now entered the modest little hostelry, where Clayton soon made arrangements for their entertainment. They were sitting in the little, stuffy parlour when the distant chugging of an approaching automobile caught their attention. Mr. Philander, who was sitting near the window, looked out as the car drew in sight, finally stopping beside the other automobiles. "'Bless me!' said Mr. Philander, a shade of annoyance in his tone. "'It is Mr. Candler. I had hoped—er—I um, had thought of—oh—how uh, very happy we should be that he was not caught in the fire,' he ended lamely. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander,' said Professor Porter. "'Tut-tut! I have often admonished my pupils to count ten before speaking. Were I you, Mr. Philander, I should count at least a thousand and then maintain a discreet silence. "'Bless me, yes,' acquiesced Mr. Philander. "'But who is the clerical-appearing gentleman with him?' Jane blanched. Clayton moved uneasily in his chair. Professor Porter removed his spectacles nervously and breathed upon them, but replaced them on his nose without wiping. The ubiquitous Esmeralda grunted. Only Tarzan did not comprehend. Presently Robert Candler burst into the room. "'Thank God!' he cried. "'I feared the worst until I saw your car, Clayton. I was cut off on the south road and had to go away back to town, and then strike east to this road. I thought we'd never reach the cottage.' No one seemed to enthuse much. Tarzan eyed Robert Candler as Sabor eyes her prey. Jane glanced at him and coughed nervously. "'Mr. Candler?' she said. This is Monsieur Tarzan, an old friend. Candler turned and extended his hand. Tarzan rose and bowed as only D'Arnot could have taught a gentleman to do it, but he did not seem to see Candler's hand. 
nor did Candler appear to notice the oversight. "'This is the Reverend Mr. Toosley, Jane,' said Candler, turning to the clerical party behind him. "'Mr. Toosley, Miss Porter.' Mr. Toosley bowed and beamed. Candler introduced him to the others. "'We can have the ceremony at once, Jane,' said Candler. "'Then you and I can catch the midnight train in town.' Tarzan understood the plan instantly. He glanced out of half-closed eyes at Jane, but he did not move. The girl hesitated. The room was tense with the silence of taut nerves. All eyes turned toward Jane, awaiting her reply. "'Can't we wait a few days?' she asked. "'I am all unstrung. I have been through so much today.' Candler felt the hostility that emanated from each member of the party. It made him angry. "'We have waited as long as I intend to wait,' he said roughly. "'You have promised to marry me. I shall be played with no longer. I have the license, and here is the preacher. Come, Mr. Toosley. Come, Jane. There are plenty of witnesses. More than enough,' he added with a disagreeable inflection, and taking Jane Porter by the arm he started to lead her toward the waiting minister.' But scarcely had he taken a single step ere a heavy hand closed upon his arm with a grip of steel. Another hand shot to his throat, and in a moment he was being shaken high above the floor, as a cat might shake a mouse. Jane turned in horrified surprise toward Tarzan, and, as she looked into his face, she saw the crimson band upon his forehead that she had seen that other day in far distant Africa when Tarzan of the Apes had closed in mortal combat with a great anthropoid, Turkoz. She knew that murder lay in that savage heart, and with a little cry of horror she sprang forward to plead with the ape-man. But her fears were more for Tarzan than for Candler. She realized the stern retribution which justice meets to the murderer. Before she could reach them, however, Clayton had jumped to Tarzan's side, and attempted to drag Candler from his grasp. With a single sweep of one mighty arm, the Englishman was hurled across the room, and then Jane laid a firm white hand upon Tarzan's wrist, and looked up into his eyes. "'For my sake,' she said. The grasp upon Candler's throat relaxed. Tarzan looked down into the beautiful face before him. "'Do you wish this to live?' he asked in surprise. "'I do not wish him to die at your hands, my friend,' she replied. "'I do not wish you to become a murderer.' Tarzan removed his hand from Candler's throat. "'Do you release her from her promise?' he asked. "'It is the price of your life.' Candler, gasping for breath, nodded. "'Will you go away and never molest her further?' Again the man nodded his head, his face distorted by fear of the death that had been so close. Tarzan released him, and Candler staggered toward the door. In another moment he was gone, and the terror-stricken preacher with him. Tarzan turned toward Jane. "'May I speak with you for a moment, alone?' he asked. The girl nodded and started toward the door leading to the narrow veranda of the little hotel. She passed out to await Tarzan, and so did not hear the conversation which followed. "'Wait!' cried Professor Porter, as Tarzan was about to follow. 
the professor had been stricken dumb with surprise by the rapid developments of the past few minutes. "'Before we go further, sir, I should like an explanation of the events which have just transpired. By what right, sir, did you interfere between my daughter and Mr. Candler? I had promised him her hand, sir, and regardless of our personal likes or dislikes, sir, that promise must be kept.' "'I interfered, Professor Porter,' replied Tarzan, "'because your daughter does not love Mr. Candler. She does not wish to marry him.' that is enough for me to know you do not know what you have done said professor porter now he will doubtless refuse to marry her he most certainly will said tarzan emphatically and further added tarzan you need not fear that your pride will suffer professor porter for you will be able to pay the candler person what you owe him the moment you reach home tut tut sir exclaimed professor porter what do you mean sir your treasure has been found said tarzan what what is that you are saying cried the professor you are mad man it cannot be it is though it was i who stole it not knowing either its value or to whom it belonged i saw the sailors bury it and ape-like i had to dig it up and bury it again elsewhere when D'Arnot told me what it was, and what it meant to you, I returned to the jungle and recovered it. It had caused so much crime and suffering and sorrow, that D'Arnot thought it best not to attempt to bring the treasure itself on here, as had been my intention, so I have brought a letter of credit instead. Here it is, Professor Porter, and Tarzan drew an envelope from his pocket, and handed it to the astonished professor. Two hundred and forty-one thousand dollars. The treasure was most carefully appraised by experts, but lest there should be any question in your mind, D'Arnot himself bought it, and is holding it for you, should you prefer the treasure to the credit. "'To the already great burden of the obligations we owe you, sir,' said Professor Porter, with trembling voice, "'is now added this greatest of all services.' You have given me the means to save my honor. Clayton, who had left the room a moment after Candler, now returned. Pardon me, he said. I think we had better try to reach town before dark and take the first train out of this forest. A native just rode by from the north, who reports that the fire is moving slowly in this direction. This announcement broke up further conversation, and the entire party went out to the waiting automobiles. Clayton, with Jane, the professor, and Esmeralda occupied Clayton's car, while Tarzan took Mr. Flander in with him. "'Bless me!' exclaimed Mr. Flander, as the car moved off after Clayton. "'Who would ever have thought it possible? The last time I saw you, you were a veritable wild man, skipping about among the branches of a tropical African forest. And now you are driving me along a Wisconsin road in a French automobile.' bless me but it is most remarkable yes assented tarzan and then after a pause mr philander do you recall any of the details of the finding and burying of three skeletons found in my cabin beside that african jungle very distinctly sir very distinctly replied mr philander was there anything peculiar about any of those skeletons 
Mr. Philander eyed Tarzan narrowly. "'Why do you ask?' "'It means a great deal to me to know,' replied Tarzan. "'Your answer may clear up a mystery. It can do no worse, at any rate, than to leave it still a mystery. I have been entertaining a theory concerning those skeletons for the past two months, and I want you to answer my question to the best of your knowledge. Were the three skeletons you buried all human skeletons?' "'No,' said Mr. Philander. The smallest one, the one found in the crib, was the skeleton of an anthropoid ape. Thank you, said Tarzan. In the car ahead, Jane was thinking fast and furiously. She had felt the purpose for which Tarzan had asked a few words with her, and she knew that she must be prepared to give him an answer in the very near future. He was not the sort of person one could put off, and somehow that very thought made her wonder if she did not really fear him and could she love him where she feared? She realized the spell that had been upon her in the depths of that far-off jungle, but there was no spell of enchantment now in prosaic Wisconsin. Nor did the immaculate young Frenchman appeal to the primal woman in her, as had the stalwart forest god. Did she love him? She did not know. Now. She glanced at Clayton out of the corner of her eye. Was not here a man trained in the same school of environment in which she had been trained? A man with social position and culture, such as she had been taught to consider as the prime essentials to a congenial association? Did not her best judgment point to this young English nobleman, whose love she knew to be of the sort a civilized woman should crave, as the logical mate for such as herself? Could she love Clayton? She could see no reason why she could not. Jane was not coldly calculating by nature, but training, environment, and heredity had all combined to teach her to reason even in matters of the heart. That she had been carried off her feet by the strength of the young giant when his great arms were about her in the distant African forest, and again today in the Wisconsin woods, seemed to her only attributable to a temporary mental reversion to type on her part to the psychological appeal of the primeval man, to the primeval woman in her nature. If he should never touch her again, she reasoned, she would never feel attracted toward him. She had not loved him, then. It had been nothing more than a passing hallucination, superinduced by excitement and by personal contact. Excitement would not always mark their future relations, should she marry him and the power of personal contact eventually would be dulled by familiarity. Again she glanced at Clayton. He was very handsome and every inch a gentleman. She should be very proud of such a husband. And then he spoke. A minute sooner or a minute later might have made all the difference in the world to three lives. But Chance stepped in, and pointed out to Clayton the psychological moment. "'You are free now, Jane,' he said. "'Won't you say yes? I will devote my life to making you very happy.' "'Yes,' she whispered. That evening in the little waiting-room at the station Tarzan caught Jane alone for a moment. "'You are free now, Jane,' he said. "'And I have come across the ages, out of the dim and distant past, from the lair of a primeval man to claim you.' 
For your sake I have become a civilized man. For your sake I have crossed oceans and continents. For your sake I will be whatever you will me to be. I can make you happy, Jane, in the life you know and love best. Will you marry me? For the first time she realized the depths of the man's love, all that he had accomplished in so short a time solely for love of her. Turning her head she buried her face in her arms. What had she done? Because she had been afraid she might succumb to the pleas of this giant, she had burned her bridges behind her. In her groundless apprehension that she might make a terrible mistake, she had made a worse one. And then she told him all told him the truth, word by word, without attempting to shield herself or condone her error. "'What can we do?' he asked. "'You have admitted that you love me. You know that I love you, but I do not know the ethics of society by which you are governed. I shall leave the decision to you, for you know best what will be for your eventual welfare.' "'I cannot tell him, Tarzan,' she said. He too loves me, and he is a good man. I could never face you nor any other honest person if I repudiated my promise to Mr. Clayton. I shall have to keep it, and you must help me bear the burden, though we may not see each other again after tonight. The others were entering the room now, and Tarzan turned toward the little window. But he saw nothing outside. Within he saw a patch of greensward surrounded by a matted mass of gorgeous tropical plants and flowers, and above the waving foliage of mighty trees, and, over all, the blue of an equatorial sky. In the center of the greensward a young woman sat upon a little mound of earth, and beside her sat a young giant. They ate pleasant fruit, and looked into each other's eyes, and smiled. They were very happy, and they were all alone. His thoughts were broken in upon by the station agent, who entered asking if there was a gentleman by the name of Tarzan in the party. "'I am Monsieur Tarzan,' said the ape-man. "'Here is a message for you, forwarded from Baltimore. It is a cablegram from Paris.' Tarzan took the envelope and tore it open. The message was from Darnot. It read, "'Fingerprints prove you Greystoke. Congratulations, Darnot.' As Tarzan finished reading, Clayton entered and came toward him with extended hand. Here was the man who had Tarzan's title, and Tarzan's estates, and was going to marry the woman whom Tarzan loved, the woman who loved Tarzan. A single word from Tarzan would make a great difference in this man's life. It would take away his title, and his lands, and his castles, and it would take them away from Jane Porter also. "'I say, old man,' cried Clayton, "'I haven't had a chance to thank you for all you've done for us. "'It seems as though you had your hands full, "'saving our lives in Africa and here. "'I'm awfully glad you came on here. "'We must get better acquainted. "'I often thought about you, you know, "'and the remarkable circumstances of your environment. "'If it's any of my business, "'how the devil did you ever get into that bally jungle?' I was born there, said Tarzan quietly. My mother was an ape, and, of course, she couldn't tell me much about it. 
I never knew who my father was. End of chapter, end of book. For the further adventures of Lord Greystoke, read The Return of Tarzan. Thank you for listening.